just like opened up this incredible opportunity to actually start to do this right. And I think it also made me really aware of how, um, particularly in the area of racial equity, how like colorblind my science education had been and why that was actually then such a disservice to health research and biomedical research in general. So I think we're much more now on the same page than we probably ever have been in the past in, in biomedical research. I don't think we're there yet, but I think now we have a chance to get there <laughs> because we've, we're actually like starting to understand the language that you know everybody is speaking. Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Round, a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, physician and informatics researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, at KBJohnsonMD on Twitter, or at www.kevinbjohnsonmd.net on the web. My co-host, S.T. Bland, is a senior project manager at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and an all-around great person. You can find ST at Sarah T. Bland on Twitter. Well, as you likely surmised from the comments made by Dr. Leah Davis in our teaser, this episode is going to introduce the concepts of health equity and biomedical informatics. We're going to revisit this theme multiple times in 2023, but I wanted to kick off the year with this overview so that we can also have a framework on which we can build the rest of these topics. We're really lucky to have two guests, both of whom are great colleagues and friends and whose careers have focused on this topic from very different disciplines. Leah Davis, PhD, is an associate professor in the Division of Genetic Medicine in the Department of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Her work explores the genomic architecture of complex traits defined as the type, the frequency, and the function of variants in the DNA that collectively contribute to genetic predisposition for a given trait. Consuelo Wilkins, MD, MSCI, Masters of Science in Clinical Investigation, is a nationally recognized physician scientist leader in health equity research focused on integrating social, cultural, and environmental factors into clinical and translational research. Consuelo is a professor of medicine in the Division of Geriatric Medicine within the Department of Medicine at Vanderbilt and is Senior Vice President of Health Equity and Inclusive Excellence at VUMC, and that's not enough. She's also Senior Associate Dean of Health Equity and Inclusive Excellence for Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. We also welcome back the Daily Fair. Northern-born songwriters Alyssa Abler and Hannah Smith, who've joined Creative Forces to form a musical duo with a unique sound and look for Nashville performers. We've had them on the show before, and they always relate incredibly well to the topic. And this one, by the way, is no exception. They actually grew up on opposite sides of the music world, with influences ranging from Judy Garland and Adele to Beethoven and Bach, but with a healthy dose of Broadway, punk cabaret, and 80s ballads sprinkled in the mix. 
They also share a story common with many new-ish groups breaking into the music biz that makes the topic of today one they related to in ways you'll readily appreciate. So ST and I tried to keep this at high level, but we also weren't afraid to push our friends <laughs> to explain some of the difficult concepts. This is new to many people. It was as important a discussion as it was enlightening and engaging, and I'm really glad to be able to share it with the world. So please take it all in. Well, hey, everybody. Um, really excited about this episode. Uh, let's make sure our listeners have a chance of knowing who we are. ST? I'm ST, and you've heard me before, and you've heard my voice in very various different ranges over the years. You've got that low, mellow thing going now. I'm down to a bass, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> let's see. Um, we have a bunch of guests here. So, um, Consuelo, tell us who you are and say hello. Hi, Consuelo Wilkins. I am a physician and researcher at Vanderbilt, where I have a few different titles, but yes, um, I do. mostly work for everybody else. So <laughs> I'm Senior Vice President for Health Equity and Inclusive Excellence. Excellent. Thank you. Leah, who are you? Hi, I'm Leah Davis. I'm a faculty member in the Division of Genetic Medicine at Vanderbilt. Um, and my my lab focuses on kind of understanding the genetic relationship between um, conditions of the brain and conditions of the body. Thank you. So ST, we have these uh, these two other fantastic musicians here. Can you say a little bit about them and introduce them and have them introduce themselves, et cetera? Yeah. So, uh, gosh, it was a few years ago that uh, my wife and I started to play on a softball league and I met Alyssa and Alyssa said that they have this band. And so I started listening to the Daily Fair and thought, man, these are some cool people. Uh, and so I reached out to Alyssa a few years ago and asked to be a part of the podcast occasionally. So Alyssa, why don't you introduce yourself and then Hannah go as well? Sounds good. Uh, yeah, my name is Al Alyssa or Liz, whichever you prefer. I like both. Um, yeah, I play guitar and sing and play piano in the Daily Fair, and I fix people's uh, houses when I'm not doing that these days. Nice. So then Hannah. And I'm Hannah Smith. I sing lead vocals and guitar for our band, The Daily Fair. And when we're not, when I'm not performing, I'm also in people's houses fixing things, which is where I am right now. <laughs> You're kidding me. Nope. Yeah, I uh, I have a on-call personal assisting and home organization company, so it keeps me quite busy. I'm sure. We have benefited many times now over the last few years from home organizational assistance. Let's just say my socks have never looked more organized. <laughs> just the socks, though. Oh, yeah. The rest of it, I did a pretty good job with. Right. <laughs> So uh, I've gathered you all here today um, to perform a ceremony, actually. No, um, on the side, I am a, I am an officiant. Uh, I, I do perform weddings, if none of y'all do that. Um, no, I've, I've had the honor of uh, being able to work with uh, Consuelo and Leah on different projects, um, both around health disparity work. And um, this topic, I feel like it just keeps coming up in our podcast about uh, equity uh, within the informatics 
partially on the research side, then partially uh, in the clinical space. Um, so I thought both of you, Leah and Consuelo, would be really great to talk about what you all do and what how you see informatics in your work, both from a clinical and a research perspective. Kind of give a lay of the land and see what it's like uh, and what we can do better. Um, Consuelo, kind of tell us what you do, how you see uh, informatics in, in your daily work, um, and what you see are the issues. Well, I'm nodding because it's like a dream come true to be on the podcast. So I'm just, you know, really excited. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> I've been waiting for a long time. So I know, I know. I, I certainly, the, the foundation of my work is equity and thinking about how how we can make sure that everyone has a fair and just chance to be healthy is is really what I do. And um, that, I mean, that involves the clinical space within the health systems, in the community, uh, more broadly within research. How do we make sure that that's uh, not perpetuating, creating inequities and certainly trying to solve them? I don't know that I, I think about it as so much as informatics but certainly I think about the data, the data that we need, the data that we don't have, how the data might be harming us. Uh, and so, you know, really you know, we, we, we tend to on my teams you now think from the standpoint of what the, the end should look like. So what does equity look like and how can we get there? And um, I'll just share a couple of things that we're doing more recently focused on equity, including you know, developing this patient equity metric where we're, we've come up with a composite of five different components of, of um, what it would look like for different populations within our health system um, to experience equitable care, equitable outcomes. And a lot of that is about data. So we just this morning, we're trying to map the data sources for if we're going to do equity work, are we capturing capturing race, ethnicity, preferred language, um, gender identity, uh, sexual orientation, zip code, other social drivers? Are we capturing them in a way that we can actually use them to disaggregate or stratify the data so that we can see first it, what the outcomes look like? I think that's been one of the biggest challenges, but I mean, we know there, there are inequities among these populations. Uh, and so again, how can we capture better better data um, and um, use that data uh, for the greater good? Yeah. So Leah, you use this data on a regular basis <laughs> as well for, for your research. Uh, are we there yet? Are you seeing the issues that Consuelo is talking about when you do your research? I mean, absolutely. And so I think... Um, are we there yet in terms of like um, efficiently and appropriately and comprehensively capturing all of these variables on everybody who comes through our health system so that we can actually make use of them in clinical and research practice? No, <laughs> but are we um, addressing it and um, and starting to realize what is actually needed to to do this kind of work in an equitable way? I think yes, and um, and I think at Vanderbilt, Consuelo has definitely been like a leading, if not the leading, voice in doing that. Um, and and for me personally, it's really been through engagement in the U fifty four center that um, the population health center that um, Consuelo and 
Nancy and you know others within Vanderbilt and at Miami and Meharry um, led that actually like gave me the the time and dedicated space to really um, begin to investigate these not just the data but the constructs the ideas that um, of like where race came from, why do we call it a social construct? What does that actually even mean? How does it relate to these other variables that, you know, that I work with on a regular basis, like genetic data or lab values? Um, having some time and space and access to educated people on that topic. So mixing sociologists and anthropologists and geneticists and that just like opened up this incredible opportunity to actually start to do this right and i think it also made me really aware of how um particularly in the area of racial equity how like colorblind my science education had been and why that was actually then such a disservice to health research and biomedical research in general. So I think we're much more now on the same page than we probably ever have been in the past in, in biomedical research. I don't think we're there yet, but I think now we have a chance to get there <laughs> because we've, we're actually like starting to understand the language that you know everybody is speaking. Yeah, so you, you said you were colorblind uh, in some of your your understanding in science. Can you explain that a little bit and what that might mean? Yeah, I mean, I think because, um, you know, my training was in, um, was in human genetics through uh, like a foundation in biological sciences. Um, and through those paths, there really wasn't ever any exposure to um the kind of social influences that can stratify society and can influence our health race being a primary example gender being another you know that like we were never required to take any gender studies um or you know critical race theory or anything that could actually inform our understanding of these outside outside of the body um, influences that then affect the body. And that I think is a huge gap in, in my own education that I- Not, not just yours. Then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that I was then called on to fill, but also is like continues to be a gap that I think we're now realizing can't persist. And I think especially for me as a geneticist, once I started to um, to really reckon with the history of my own field, it became even more critical to me that um, that I carry and share an awareness of the damage that my field has done, um, in part because of this unwillingness to to really learn from from scholars and people outside of the field who have been studying these sorts of social and um, cultural phenomenon that influence our health. Oh, 
I'll say that this um, process of, of people learning from each other, different disciplines, was really re very interesting in this um, collaborative that Lee is talking about with um, uh, all these different groups of social, biological, genetic, clinical uh, folks um, who I must say were willing to learn from each other. I think that's really, really a key piece of of uh, why we, we were able to do some really important things um, to, to challenge these disciplinary silos uh, that we've had. But the idea that um, geneticists are colorblind, I think is, is an important one because I do think that uh, the geneticists were approaching this work from, from the standpoint of, well, there, there's no real race thing that we're seeing here in the genes. Whereas often in the clinical space and um, you know, sort of how society interprets often health um, it is, has been seen more, no, there is a biological underpinning with these racial and ethnic groups. That's why we're seeing these differences in the outcomes. So, so that nuance of how geneticists, I think, have been taught or learned or uh, approached the work has been more of this colorblind where um, I think, again, clinicians and clinical researchers and many others have been more biased, um, actively biased, uh, that that uh, these groups are, are different. So uh, really trying to understand some of those nuances uh, was also um, eye-opening, I think. And, and of course, the social scientists uh, were more like, of, of course, the, the, you know, these social experiences, these policies and structures that have enabled us to have these categories of race and ethnicity are the reasons that people are sick. <laughs> and so again, thinking through how we bring all of those different lenses together um, was really uh, fascinating. This is such a great topic. And one of the things that I know is likely happening with Hannah and Liz is that they're sort of thinking, do I understand this topic? Have I, are there things about this topic that maybe, you know, we need to get more aware of? So I'm gonna bring up a couple of terms because I just wanna get a general sense of, of their awareness. So first of all, show of hands if you've heard of redlining. All right, so hands went up later than other hands for those people who are listening, which means some people were either thinking, I guess I've got it or maybe not. So. Can somebody explain what redlining is? Because I'm sure a lot of people in our audience don't understand it. And, and why might it matter in terms of health? So redlining is, uh, was a practice that happened um, in many places in the United States in which um, areas of certain cities, and so we'll use Nashville, for example, areas in North Nashville and Southeast Nashville were um, outlined in red as parts of town that were undesirable to live in. So these were places that um, for banks, for lenders, um, they were not going to actually loan you money to purchase a home for your mortgage. Um, these have, just happen to be uh, the communities in which um, Black people, people of color were likely to live. So um, these these areas of town that were redlined were um, deemed so in part because poor people lived there uh, and black people lived there. Uh, so uh, it, 
the, these became over many generations um, areas of town that were disinvested. Uh, and if you actually look at the COVID-19 um, data early on in 2020, even throughout 2021, you could actually map the dis COVID disparities back to those districts and areas of town that were redlined. So um, the idea that um, race, racism was really baked into these policies of lending um, is in fact what we see in redlining. Yeah, thank you. And what always amazes me is people would say things like, well, okay, so now people know that, but there are plenty of people who are upwardly mobile and they leave these communities. But one of the other phenomena is that a lot of these homes are owned by families. And at the end of the day, someone can take that home over. So it's a free house available in an undesirable neighborhood. What do you do? And I know I've actually had a chance to talk with a few um, administrative assistants at Vanderbilt, for example, who had this real challenge of, I've got this house, nobody will buy it. It's a house, I should live there. Now, that would be fine if in fact there weren't other environmental issues associated with being in those neighborhoods. Can any of you, either of you or anybody speak to what some of the environmental risks might be by staying in a neighborhood where you can own a house, but maybe it's better not to? I mean, we've lived in a couple of those areas of town, I think. Yeah, right, Hannah, kind of. And I mean, there aren't sidewalks and there aren't streetlights. There aren't always connecting roads to main. It's not made for you to be a mobile person right. in life, I think was my most, the thing that was most obvious to me. Going yeah, it's like accessibility to what human beings should be allowed to be accessible to in our day and age um, is is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Like our closest grocery store, even now um, where we live, we live, we moved to a side of town that was considered that. Um, and I bought a home there and our closest grocery store, most of the people in that area walked to the bus stop. Um, so to get fresh produce is six miles. Wow. Um, so for, and there's no sidewalks anywhere. There have been, um, many, many people seriously injured or killed, um, just simply because of that. Domestic violence is really, really intense. Really? Um, yeah, it's, it's, you can, you can feel just people wanting more, not being able to get it. So how did you know that that was an area that was a redlined area? Is that out for people, do people publicly talk about it? Um, at the time, it was a side of our city that um, was kind of projected to start growing. And, but it was like, no, no white person moves over there. It's literally what they were saying to us. No white person's going to move over there. And um, I was like, well, what if, you know, we start a garden? How do we fill a bit of the gap in, in this space um, to make things more accessible for people, communicate, connect people to people that can help them financially or um, in different areas to get the help that they need? Um, yeah. So, yeah. The, the data was out there. My 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 realtor gave it to me. 
I'm not sure if where we are is technically what I would consider a traditionally a red line. No, it's the neighborhood. It's we next. Abut. Yeah, we're right next on the other side of the street. Consuelo mm -hmm. is nodding very understandably. Well, I'm not sure if you were ready for us to go in this direction, but I, you know, I think, and Hannah and Liz, thanks for sharing that. That the things that you pointed out are exactly the kinds of things that we need to know if we're trying to understand how to make people healthy or give people the fairest chance to be healthy, or if we're seeing them in the health system, understand why they might not be healthy already. So, you know, you don't have, um, you know, safe place to walk, you don't have access to a grocery store with, uh, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, you're worried about um, your, your safety just in general. Like, you know, living in these kinds of environments and settings um, have take a toll on your body, your mind, your ability to um, to really be in the in the right place to make decisions about health. And so, um, it's it's really important for us to imagine um, one how we can again change those things, but two, how can we capture that information um, so that we understand your in, your entire picture of your your life, your social circumstances when we're thinking about your health. And and right now we don't do a very good job at all of, with with capturing that in the in the clinical setting. Yeah. So you're you're going the route that I'm hoping to. Um, Consuelo, yes, this is why we're on the podcast today. Um, I, I'm thinking, Kevin, what you said, you know, about this house has been in a family for decades and generations. And, you know, you've got this person who who wants to keep the house in, in their family. And so they know it needs improvements. Let's say it's got lead paint. It's got pipes that that are, you know, dilapidated um, and it's causing health issues. How do you capture that? in someone's health record, Consuelo, right right now, how do you see that? Um, I think that the, the challenge we have right now, and this is something that I, get, again, it's funny how you, as you get older and a little bit wiser and a little bit more gray hair, as I told somebody, once the hairs, the gray hairs came out of my nose, I felt so much smarter. Um, <laughs> and so one of the things I've realized is this whole idea of whitewashing, and, and Leah, you mentioned this, um, for those of us who grew up in primarily white neighborhoods, there were just ways of thinking that you don't necessarily realize are racist. And yet you think that way. So how, is this, how does this happen? Well, number one, I don't think we as physicians recognize the importance of documenting these things. Mm -hmm. So if you're gonna find it in the chart, it's much more likely to be through the social worker note, who's trying to talk about the, the, the patient on cardiac rehab who has to go up three flights of stores lives in an unair conditioned house in the summer in Nashville because that's really fun and healthy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the rest of us don't even think to ask those questions because we don't have that lived experience. So I think a part of it is our own naivete about the relative importance of that as data. And that's, we could talk a long time about that issue. Um, another part of it is that some of us don't even know the questions to ask. I would venture to say that there's a number of people I could have gone on. I was going to ask about Henrietta Lacks, and I could have brought up at least a dozen terms where I'm fairly certain there are people who are on their treadmill listening to this who would say, I've never heard of that. 
because they went to the same kinds of schools I did and haven't taken the time to read things like the 1619 Project or any one of a number of books, Elaine Locke's book, that really expose you to a side of American history that makes it a little bit clearer why experts like, like Consuelo would say structural racism is still present and it's present in all sorts of ways that you wouldn't realize were structural racism at the time or, or continue to be that way. So that's why I think we are, are naive to it. Um, do you guys agree? Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think I think there, you know, certainly there's a growing interest over the last, you know, number of years to documenting social and structural drivers of health. Um, I, I think we've not still not done a great job of it. Uh, we're still conflating uh, social and structural determinants of health with behaviors like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some some of the things again we talked about social and structural determinants of health would be housing, you know, transportation, food, security or insecurity, employment, opportunities, education, those are social um, drivers of health. Um, and sometimes we just go to the often response to you know, being in disadvantaged and um, uh, impoverished circumstances, which might be um, alcohol use or depression. And, and we capture those things, but that's not really what we we're talking mm -hmm. about. We're talking about social and structural um, drivers of health. But I, I do think for ST's question about, you know, what do you, what would you do uh, documenting the house, the condition of the house uh, is probably too individual level focus because what we're talking about is the neighborhood. You know, how do you, how do you document the, the walkability of the neighborhood? Um, how do you document the police response times in the neighborhood, the environmental exposures in the neighborhood, the graduation rates in the, the neighborhood. Like those are important aspects of the um, of society of their immediate environment that that have a big influence on their their opportunities to be healthy. Uh, that even the individual might not know all of those things. Probably doesn't know all of those things. Mm -hmm. So Leah, do you see this already in the data that you use for research? Well, to the extent that we have some um, area level data, we do definitely see a relationship between um, uh, more like economically disadvantaged areas or areas that have been disinvested in. Um, and access to care and then subsequently the health conditions that emerge from that. Um, and it's been a really interesting um, view of the data because, you know, when we first started looking at what we have is, is uh, called the area deprivation index. And it's like a combination of multiple census level um, variables. So things like, um, you know, how many abandoned homes are there in the neighborhood, the, um, the average income, um, there's some like employment and education information in there too, but it's an area level. So it's like at the level of the neighborhood, for example. And, um, and when you intersect that with, um, like how often people come to the doctor and why they come to the doctor, what you see is kind of 
really not surprising. What you see is that people are much less likely to have like regular primary care checkups and that kind of preventative care. Um, so, you know, they're not being diagnosed with things like bronchitis or the flu or, um, or vision problems or things like that, but they are being diagnosed with the much more severe health conditions that come after years and years of, you know, a low level of access to healthcare. So, you know, severe cardiovascular disease, kidney failure, you know, um, COPD. So it's, it's really like pretty clear how those area level variables that, that Consuelo is talking about affect access to regular care and then ultimately Im impact people's you know, lives in much more substantial ways. Um, and, uh, oh, go ahead, Kevin. Go ahead. I was I was going to ask, does this surprise you, uh, Hannah and Liz, like hearing this kind of stuff? Is it surprising to you? You're shaking your head no. So so why not? Um, I've, for the last year and a half, have been working in the renovation and remodeling uh, world. And some of the homes that I've gone into, I mean, for the most part, um, I'm a subcontractor. Most of the houses I go into are middle class as like the baseline if, up to, you know, multi-million dollar homes. And some of the, some of, um, mixed in there are a few in areas which I would consider to be underdeveloped parts of town more so than others. And having crawled under those houses and mm. fixed those pipes and seeing what comes out of where the drinking water is coming from. And it, I just, I see the things that are in the floor and in the ground water that's pooling outside or whatever. So I, it doesn't surprise me. And also I think, and Hannah may have more to say about this, but we talk to the people in the neighborhood next door. We have garage sales and we ask people like what, you know, what they need. We, if we're getting, if there's something we don't need anymore, if it's in good shape, it goes on the curb with a free sign because I don't need it, but someone else may have an incredible use for the thing that I don't need anymore that's in perfect shape and just not have the ability to get it. But if someone can use it, great. But yeah, the environmental stuff is, and both of us have connections to health and um, wellness professionals in our, in our personal lives. And it just I think both of us look for different things than the average person on the street would be looking for when they meet people. So I'm not surprised that Hannah, I don't know if you feel the same. I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm disappointed that this is, even has to be a conversation, but it like, I didn't grow up with wealth. Like my family lived in really crappy rentals, my whole upbringing, you know, mayonnaise sandwiches. Um, and and so it's very easy to to see it when you've lived it in your own way despite the color of your skin and it's just it's in, it's incredibly disappointing that the health disparity is is so so heavy still yeah and um just trying to find resources for people like Liz said when we meet people we 
we try really hard to to see what the need is and and do what we can to to get people connected where they need to get connected but it's just finding resources and information and how do we as people who care help you know solve this problem you know how do like being part of this podcast and thank you for continually having us back it's uh, my brain yeah. loves this kind of stuff but Same. hearing it hearing all this information from a different vantage point is just going to increase my understanding of people moving forward with life so well this brings up two conversations i want to have with leah that i'm sure consuelo is going to want to say a lot about as well so leah's been doing some very interesting research in a not so and by interesting i mean enlightening in a sad way <laughs> So I'm hoping we can keep this a little bit light, but here it goes. So number one, there is this issue, a friend of mine calls it, uh, Ralph Horowitz, if he's listening, biosocial pathogenesis. The idea that there may be an interaction between biology and biography that most people may not imagine relate, but that actually can synergistically make disease worse in one population due to genetic risk factors. Leah, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, so I think what you're talking about um, would be in the genetics world referred to as a gene by environment interaction. And that's basically where, um, I, well, let me take a step back. I mean, every uh, common health condition from depression to diabetes to cardiovascular disease um, is really a combination of genetic and environmental uh, contributors. And, um, and we all are walking around with some level of genetic risk for all of these health conditions. Um, and that genetic risk that can then be um, maybe mitigated by our environment, or it can be really exacerbated by our environment. And, um, and so having um, even sometimes low genetic risk in a really um, resource poor environment can also lead to disease. Um, so thinking about things like, you know, even if I had low baseline genetic risk for cardiovascular disease, but I had no access to, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables and, you know, healthy um, diet, then I, I would still be on track for some some real health concerns once I got into adulthood. Um, now, if I also had genetic risk in my family for cardiovascular disease, on top of living in, in an environment where I didn't have that kind of access, then, you know, I could be on track for an earlier age where I started to develop disease or a more severe form of disease. So those are the kinds of like gene by environment interactions that, that we often see. But of course, it's important to have some data on the environment, right? Without that, you don't know what your genes are actually interacting with. Yeah, so basically because I don't record the data as well as I could as a pediatrician, it would be more difficult for researchers to identify through the usual discovery methods a gene by environment interaction? Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. You know, certainly we know there's a biophysiological response to stress. And, you know, many of the things we're talking about, stress includes discrimination, racism, poverty, um, all of those things um, 
can trigger, you know, a cascade of, of physiological responses that lead to um, changes in, you know, inflammation, your body's response to um, insulin, uh, all, all sorts of your likelihood of getting infections. So all of those things can happen because of, of your interactions with the environment and that have really, and Leo may disagree, really have nothing to do with genetics. I mean, it, it, ha it can happen to anyone regardless. Yeah. Yeah. But, but certainly, you know, one of the things that we are studying um, as well is the, the epigenetic changes that can occur from your um, interactions with the environment. So we are currently using um, bio well, what's, what's epigenetic? I don't think a lot of people know what that term means. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask I'm gonna call a friend phone a friend and see if Leo, if, if Leo will express explain it better than I will. Yeah. Sure. So um so when we think about um, our human genetics, we're usually talking about um you know all of the three billion base pairs that are in our genome that are you know in the in each cell in our body, um, but it's the way that our body actually reads that genetic information is a more complicated process. And um, an epigenetics refers to the changes that um, that can occur kind of layered on to the, the, um, the base pairs themselves. And so when I say changes, I'm talking about like additions of um, uh, small compounds that literally sit on top of the DNA and change the way that the DNA can be read. And these compounds can turn a gene off, they can turn a gene on, they can basically make it so that um, the machinery that's reading the genome can't see that there's a gene there. Um, so they, ha they have a lot of influence on what gets expressed in each cell of your body and what doesn't get expressed. And the reason we call it epigenetic is because these are not necessarily changes that um, are inherited like from person to person um, in a family, but instead can be changes that are actually um, caused by environmental exposures. So one really great example of this is um, smoking. Smoking has a really clear epigenetic signature, and you can actually do these kind of epigenetic profiling studies and separate out with almost perfect, perfect accuracy smokers from non-smokers because of their epigenetic profile. Oh, fascinating. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, Consuelo, back to you. I'm so glad I have smart friends to phone. <laughs> <laughs> I would have explained it with my, you know, superficial knowledge of it, but would have, would have left some compounds off the billions of base pairs there. So, uh, but the, you know, the work that we're doing is really trying to demonstrate this link that, uh, as, as Leah's describing. So we know that people who have, you know, more um, adverse uh, childhood experiences, who live in disinvested communities, are more likely to have these chronic diseases. So we're trying to see if we can glean information from the medical records that would put people into groupings that um, are experiencing, you know, uh, social disadvantages, 
and we're doing DNA methylation studies. So that's um, how we're looking for these compounds that, that Leah described um, and seeing if we can identify some signals that are associated with specific ones. So wow. we're actually trying um, to, to link some very specific ones. Uh, so we're looking at housing uh, insecurity. We're looking at um, food insecurity. Uh, and a challenge from the data side is, you know, how do we actually identify those people in the health records? You know, there are these things called Z codes. So uh, for those of you who are familiar with uh, billing and uh, how we actually put conditions in using ICD-10s or ICD-somethings are just, you know, billing codes that we have, but they're, they're Z codes that are associated with these social determinants of health. And um, unfortunately, or maybe maybe it's not unfortunate, but not a lot of people are using them. So we're, we're trying to pull in these Z codes and identify uh, people who have these disadvantages. So one of the things that we've talked about in some past podcasts is about educating students uh, who are going into a clinical space on good documentation. Talked a lot about it in our last podcast about um, what's the, the right way to do some of the documentation uh, using templates, things like that. But how as clinicians um, or, or as, as teachers, how do you teach people to document this correctly and efficiently so that you do capture it in the medical record? That can be to any of the... Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll start and say, um, I think this is not just at the, at the, at the stage of teaching, it's mm -hmm. at the stage of actually um, identifying the right ways or the best ways to actually capture it. So, you know, um, we are using, you know, medical records, health records systems that now allow you to, to um, have a space for you to ask the questions. Uh, but again, what questions are you asking? Are they the, the questions that are going to capture the information in the best way, the way that people identify themselves um, at a, a reading level that's appropriate for everyone? Are we asking them or are we ex expecting that they're going to ask, answer these questions somewhere else? So, you know, we have questions. They're not um, adopted across health systems um, as, as widely as we would like. Um, and I think part of that is, People don't know what to do with the information once they get it. So if you find out someone is unhoused or um, having experiencing food insecurity, like what do you do with that in the clinical setting? Uh, so that's been one of the barriers. But I would say from the student standpoint, like the the, the generation of of students and learners and trainees, um, they're they're much better prepared and ready to ask these questions uh, than than many. Uh, of us who've been practicing or doing research for a long time. Um, so I, I don't think they're the real challenge there. I think it's the, you know, are we asking the questions? Do we have the right questions? Can we extract it from um, the the health, the, the records in a way that we can use it? Can we act on it? And then to the, to the area and the community level, are we really capturing the right data? Can we pull it in somehow and use it to informed decision-making. Do you feel like there's a, um, just a clinical culture 
part of that also because so i'm thinking about for example every time i go to the doctor you know one of the questions that they ask me is do you feel safe at home but it's usually asked by somebody who is in a hurry facing the computer um and and i've often thought to myself what would they do if i said no i don't feel safe at home like and i'm sure there's a protocol but just the way that the clinical encounter is set up it it doesn't like invoke a lot of sharing at that level of intimate detail you know and so i'm just curious like as we're thinking about how to get this sort of information from people like it's going to be information that some people might feel really guarded about and and for good reason you know and and so like are are we also thinking about just the environment and how we're asking those questions yeah a lot of debate about the best way um, to ask if you're going to ask who should be asking um, and a, a lot of different viewpoints i would say about who the the patient, the client, the person uh, feels like they would want to ask them. And and so that's really interesting to me as well, because we've gone a long time and I haven't even said trust yet, but Mm -hmm. you know, know, who, um, who in the health system and the encounter does the individual actually trust with this kind of sensitive and personal information, but definitely lots of, lots of things to think about um, in the, in the, in the encounter. And, and also, you know, again, should we just be pushing this for people to, to answer themselves? And if so, you know, how do we follow up on it and make sure we we fully understand the context? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Leah, you were actually going where I was as well Is that who's the right person to ask this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kevin, you mentioned the social worker notes often are, are where some of this information, um, sometimes lies. Um, how often though, do you see a social worker unless you're, you know, in the hospital setting and you're, you've been admitted, you know, and there's an occurrence for that, um, or a reason for that. Not everyone gets to see that. And you're right. A lot of the times, Leah, when someone asks you that kind of question, uh, it's kind of in a hurry, like, you know, did you, do you need to go pee? And also, uh, you feel safe at home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it's not it's not usually the time where you want to say yeah and I also drank 12 beers last night is that okay um (laughs) so uh I I do think it I wonder where I do I do want to make sure that everyone knows that um beginning January 1st 2023 the joint commission is requiring hospitals to document social determinants of health and Um, have a plan to act on it. So, so oh, this is sort of expedited some of the um, the plans that people have had around trying to capture this informa- information in a systematic way. Um, and um, it, it'll be interesting to see how different health systems approach this. And I, I do, I'm excited, while well, I'm excited that this is now a requirement, I, I do worry that we're going to start to uh, see people rush into it and uh, not have a clear plan on how to act on it. And and some of the conversations I've had recently with our um, social workers and transition management folks has been uh, around their hesitancy about now everyone asking these social uh, mm-hmm. determined health questions because 
they obviously are very deeply in, you know, involved and well-informed about resources when people need them. And so they, they are certainly worried that we'll just have a screening form, everyone will get asked and no one will get you know, real information or follow-up to meet their needs. Mm. You easily end up with a lot of data that really can't be acted on at all. That's right. The signal will be drowned out by the noise especially if it turns out that there's an issue of trust. So mm -hmm. I did want to ask about trust. Um, Consuelo, you, you taught me so much about the issues that relate to why a particular patient may choose to divulge certain information to some people, but not others, especially people of color. Um, and then also why the data that we might need to better care for a particular population of, of patients may not even be available for Leah or others to 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 um, study because of patients' lack of willingness to participate in trials. Um, can you help me to kind of unpack what is the deal there? That's a lot to unpack. <laughs> so I, I, I would I would certainly say in the space of trust, um, you know we've we've tried to shift that narrative also from trust to trustworthy. And so are we as physicians, clinicians, healthcare team members, researchers, are, are we really worthy of the trust of, uh, of the populations that we're talking about? So when, when we imagine people who've been uh, marginalized, minoritized, oppressed, harassed, um, and not treated fairly by these dis different systems, whether or not it's the health system uh, specifically, just systems, society in general, then um, they are unlikely to uh, to trust us with uh, the most personal information, as Leah was just talking about, about themselves. They're in a, in a situation of being vulnerable um, and not feeling respected. And, you know, this, this really contributes a lot to whether or not people want to share, whether they're willing to share, whether they will um, engage um, and, um, and, and want us to be involved in, in their health. The flip side of that is the power imbalance uh, that they often need uh, help and, uh, and, they, and so they delay it until there's an emergency or a more dire need um, and, and we have less opportunities to actually um, uh, prevent or, or intervene. So, you know, I, I think it's really important though, uh, some of the work, and we ha have a paper that's coming out, um, the end of December. So not sure when the podcast will air, but we have a paper that's coming out with a new, a new instrument for measuring trust. It's specifically focused on Black and Latinx, Latine communities. Um, and it, it, brings in these concepts of trust that are more often seen among um, minoritized and marginalized populations, including safety, fairness, yeah. secrecy. Secrecy, mm. that was like the most fascinating one that, um, you know, Derek Griffith and I were doing this work and we, we had these debates about, you know, is, is this idea of secrecy something different? Um, and we think it is this concept of secrecy because there are people who've been, you know, harmed. So imagine that if you if you are a descendant of uh, people who were enslaved, if you are 
you know, um, from an immigrant community that's being marginalized and and um, uh, isolated uh, from, you know, pushed out. Um, your experiences with people uh, keeping their word on something is very different. So, you know, the the foundation of trust is that we believe that people are going to keep their word. On, but the, we're talking about groups of people for whom their group's experiences have been the opposite. Um, so, so that actually gets into this space of of distrust, where it's almost as you know, being a black person in the United States. If I automatically trust you, then there's something wrong with me, because. <laughs> no. That's like, you know, why would I trust you? Where, you know, do you know how my family got here into this country and the things that have been done to us? Like, no, 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 no. So so if, if we as uh, healthcare providers or team members and researchers don't understand that fundamental difference and and how we need to show up and show that we're trustworthy, right. then, then we're already not starting at a place where we can be helpful. That's really powerful. Yeah. That's interesting that you use the word secrecy in, instead of privacy. Can you kind of talk about like how, like, what do you see as the distinction there? Because that's actually the, the debate that we as a team have, like, because oh, yeah. privacy showed up as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so we're like, the questions in the way that we ask and the, the feedback that we got was that privacy people thought about is, okay, you have information about me and you're going to keep it confidential. You're not going to share it with people that I didn't say you could share it with. Mm -hmm. I can trust that you're gonna keep it safe. The secrecy means that they believe that you are purposefully misleading them. Mm. So that's the. Oh, interesting. Okay. We're, you say you're going to give us, um, you, you say that you're going to keep our information private, um, but you're not even intending to do it. You're not putting it in a lockbox. You're not, you're not having codes. Like you're, you, you're going to keep information from us. Uh, you're keeping things from us on purpose. You're not telling us the entire story. So, so take it out oh, of the privacy gotcha. space and, and think about it as the, oh, here, um, you are um, being randomized to the sugar pill or the active treatment. Um, and they don't believe that you're actually going to randomize them. They believe that you're either going to give them the placebo if it's, mm -hmm. uh, if the treatment is better, or if the treatment is more harmful, they believe you're going to give them the, the, the treatment that you're just going to keep it a secret. You're just not going to tell them the truth at all. Wow. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. It's hard to know who to trust. So wow. this, this sounds to me like it would be a really great title of a new song. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm not making light of it. I'm, um, I am aware of the time, but, uh, you know, I think that fundamentally there's so much here and we really need to have at least a couple of episodes. So what I'm hoping that ST and I can do for this entire season is keep coming back to some of the issues around all aspects of equity and justice. Um, we haven't had a chance to talk to Leah at all 
about, and I'm going to give a little teaser here because I'd really love to have us back to talk about this, but we haven't even begun to talk about the issue of cell counts. And some of us on the call know all about this. Mm -hmm. And people who are not yet hearing that part of the podcast are thinking, cell counts? Yes. Um, it is not a pleasant conversation. And, and for those of us who've heard about it, it's just shocking. So we really need to talk about that. Would you guys be willing to come back and talk about this? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think uh, the the topic of trust, you know, so naturally came into this uh, conversation, but there's so much more around that and the data privacy yeah. um, that especially, you know, from our private or our prior conversations around Dobbs and Roe, mm -hmm. um, that's, there's just so much more to still talk about. Yeah. I will, I have to share one secrecy story because when you said it, Consuelo, I just, it just drove home this problem I had. And then we should definitely hear about a song that you guys have that you think is related to this area. So Consuelo, I was a part of the team that built a health information exchange in Southwest Tennessee. And one of the things that we uncovered when we turned it on was that there were patients who were having more than 50 visits to the emergency department for things like pseudo seizures, which is um, when you behave a certain way in public and people believe you're having a seizure, but in fact, you're faking it. Um, turns out about 20% of the people who have pseudo seizures really do have seizures, but they learn a behavior that allows them to get secondary gain from that behavior. So it turns out that while I was learning all this, I was thinking it's gonna be really important for us as, as scientists to describe what we're learning. It's going to be important on the in the national dialogue, and I was asked not to do that, and I I said um, I'm not sure I understand it, and I won't mention names, therefore I can get away with saying this. But one of the people said, you know, Dr. Johnson, um, this is the first opportunity we've really had into understanding what's going on with a whole population of people, and those people will be on the bus talking about this as soon as they learn about it, and they will opt out. And so the whole way that we can use this new technology is going to be, it's going to, and I'll use my words, not their words, important for us to keep secret so that we can understand it and learn from it and make it better. And so mm -hmm. that, that ultimately was why I did the documentary that I did, because that was a way to expose the issues to a wide audience without having to do a formal, quote, um, rigorous trial or study that was something that we were expressly kind of told, let's not do that. So yeah, secrecy is kind of alive and well. Yeah, and so that that reinforces this notion of, of um, you know, are people trustworthy, but also this difference between trust and distrust. Like the, you know, there, there's something about this, uh, the way that we have behaved in society that um, almost makes it, um, well, well, I, I, and I think we do this sometimes to, to sort of blame people for not trusting, as opposed to recognizing that we've not been trustworthy. But you know, this ongoing, you know, the spillover effects of the decisions that we make and how we treat people outside of the health system um, certainly leads to this distrust more broadly within the, the health system. Right. Well, I, I promised that I was not going to keep you guys any longer than an hour. We're now at an hour. Um, Hannah and Liz, I heard that you might have a song you'd like to tell us about and or share with everybody. Is that true? We do have a new Christmas EP that we just released. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we are the, Hannah and I are the Daily Fair. And then we have another artist friend who is, uh, they go by Noah Jordan. Um, and she joined, teamed up with us for a holiday music only uh, project, essentially. Wow. <laughs> so uh, what is it? Five songs? Yeah, it's a five song EP. It's the first of um, hopefully many. Our whole side project is holiday based, which is rather entertaining for two out of the three of us and um yeah we released it last month and it's really lovely we wanted to release a record um for people including ourselves who um the holidays aren't usually a happy thing um for a lot of people and we wanted a Christmas album that hearkened to like the happy nostalgia of um like maybe the two good memories people have about um, Christmas or the holiday season in general. And so we made a Christmas album um, around that idea. And um, you can find it on everything and you can find us on Patreon and Instagram and all of the stuff. And uh, the project is called Hold Please, it's the band. Nice. So it's Hold Please for Christmas. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's really special and um yeah we we rewrote um blue christmas because that song always made me mad so we rewrote it to be new christmas i'll have a new christmas without you oh nice yeah nice. Um, so anyway I, that one's really fun and really silly and there's kazoos and stuff so anyway the the whole thing is a trip down nostalgia lane and then I said I would do it as long as I got to write a sad song that was an original for every record. So Very nice. yep, that was my caveat. <laughs> yeah. So there's a song on there called Keys to Your House. Um, that was a group effort in making the saddest Christmas song of all time. So <laughs> yeah, hope you like it. So yeah. enjoy. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you all uh, so much for joining us today. Um, this has been a really great conversation and uh, I know that Kevin and I just really appreciate it and really want to continue the conversation on. Um, Consuelo, thank you so much for joining us from your car. It seems like it's very comfortable anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> and Leah, thank you so much. Uh, and Liz and Hannah. Yeah, and I have to say that like normally I have to do about an hour's worth of deep breathing before any kind of media experience, but <laughs> but this was really a lot of fun. So any time. Okay, that's a wrap. Really enjoyed that episode and I learned a lot myself. You'd think I wouldn't, but I did. Yep. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit it, we all have things to learn. And of course, you'll recall that Lissa and Hannah, the Daily Fair, promised us a song. And I am really excited to get a chance to have you all hear one of their newest Christmas songs entitled Blue Christmas. I think their discussion about it was probably as good as anything I'm going to say, so enjoy, because it's way better than that title might suggest. <laughs> have a great rest of the day. Have a good Christmas without you. I'll be alright, not thinking about you.